0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, Dr. Lana Daly discusses Infidelity, Revenge, Madness, and Murder, Sir Walter Scott's The Bride of Lammermoor. This recording was made as part of L.A. Opera Connect's Professional Development Series for Teachers, Opera for Educators. Don't miss Lucia de Lamore at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion this Sunday, October 9th. Tickets are available at laopera.org. Thank
1: you for having me today. I am really delighted to be here. My talk today is going to be about Walter Scott's 1819 novel, The Bride of Lammermore, and the broader context that he was working in. As someone who has devoted her life to studying the 19th century novel, I am eminently qualified to say that the 19th century novel is full of weirdness. And The Bride of Lammermoor is no exception. Indeed, it is one odd book full of mystery and intrigue, infidelity, revenge, madness and murder but also chock full of Downton Abbey-style downstairs scenes of servants talking in thick Scottish dialect about their master's business. The novel has a heavily bifurcated structure, a lot of difficult dialogue, dark prophecies and omens, witchcraft and superstitions, and a complex socio-political context. But if you drill down to the good stuff, to the marriage plot between Edgar, the master of Ravenswood, and Lucy Ashton, it is a fascinating story. A story of love and betrayal, of riches and ruin, of ancient prophecies and modern curses. A story that is deeply rooted in Scottish history, but offers manifold possibilities for modern adaptations. For educators, it provides a great case study of how fictions, courtship, and marriage plots often function to work out broader cultural anxieties. And for students, it's a terrific example of the modern potential of historical literature. So before I get into the novel itself, I wanted to give you some background on Sir Walter Scott, who at the time of The Bride of Lammermoor's publication was considered the greatest living novelist. Well, I should say most people thought of Sir Walter Scott as the greatest living novelist, but not everyone agreed. At the top of the list of people who didn't agree was none other than the American novelist Mark Twain, who was decidedly not on Team Walter Scott. And here's what he had to say about him in his 1883 book, Life on the Mississippi. It's kind of a long quote, but I promise you it's worth it. Then comes Sir Walter Scott with his enchantments and by his single might checks this wave of progress and even turns it back, sets the world in love with dreams and phantoms, with decayed and swinish forms of religion, with decayed and degraded systems of government, with the sillinesses and emptinesses, sham grandeurs, sham gods, and sham chivalries of a brainless and worthless long-vanished society." He did measureless harm, more real and lasting harm perhaps than any other individual that ever wrote. Most of the world has now outlived good part of these harms, though by no means all of them. But in the South, they flourish pretty forcefully still. Not so forcefully as half a generation ago, perhaps, but still forcefully. There, the genuine and wholesome civilization of the 19th century is curiously confused and commingled with the Walter Scott middle-aged sham civilization. And so you have practical, common sense, progressive ideas and progressive works mixed up with the dual, the inflated speech, and the jejun romanticism of an absurd past that is dead and out of charity ought to be buried. Sir Walter had so large a hand in making Southern character as it existed before the war that he is in great measure responsible for the Civil War. It seems a little harsh toward a dead man to say that we should never have had any war but for Sir Walter, and yet something of a plausible argument might perhaps be made in support of that wild proposition, end quote. Twain, of course, was a satirist, but his criticism of Sir Walter Scott was very real. Twain worried about Scott's romanticization of the good old days and feared that American readers of Scott would aspire to an aristocratic life that is directly at odds with American democratic ideals. Twain went so far as to coin a phrase, Sir Walter Scott disease, presumably code for those infected with aristocratic aspirations, and, to name a sinking steamboat in Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, the Walter Scott. (laughs) The romanticism of an absurd past that is dead that Twain critiqued in Scott's writing is certainly present in The Bride of Lammermoor*. In fact, you might argue that that is precisely what holds the novel together and gives it its charm. Before I get to the novel, though, let me tell you a little bit more about Sir Walter Scott himself. We can't let Twain have the last word. Sir Walter Scott was born on the 15th of August, 1771, in Edinburgh, Scotland. This is a picture of the street that he was born on, I mean a contemporary picture, and the commemorative plaque that now marks his birthplace. Scott was born into a well-to-do family. His father was part of the Society of Writers to Her Majesty's Signet, which was a private society of lawyers that dated back to the 16th century. As a child, Scott had polio, and it left him with a number of health difficulties for the rest of his life, including difficulty walking, which really bothered him. After finishing school, Scott began practicing law in Edinburgh, and eventually he had a career as an advocate, a legal administrator, and judge. And like many 19th century writers, including Charles Dickens, Scott maintained a day job, a day job, (laughs) alongside his job as a writer. And this was especially helpful after an 1825 banking crisis in England put him into financial ruin. Scott began writing poetry at the end of the 18th century and began writing his first novel in 1805. He also wrote some short stories, plays, and nonfiction, but he's best known as a novelist. Before he gained a reputation as a novelist, he was a well-regarded poet. In fact, in 1813, Scott was offered the position of Poet Laureate of Scotland, quite an honor and a position that most poets would jump at the opportunity to occupy. Scott, however, declined, saying that, quote, such an appointment would be like a poisoned chalice, as a succession of such poets had churned out conventional and obsequious odes on royal occasions, end quote. So, in other words, he was worried about selling out. His pal, the poet Robert Southey, had no such reservations <laughs> and gladly accepted the post in Scott's place. There's a lot to be said about Scott's work as a poet, a playwright, and an essayist, but I'm going to stay focused today on his work as a novelist. Scott's first novel, Waverly, was published anonymously in 1814. People pretty quickly figured out that Scott was the author, But he continued to publish novels anonymously for most of his career. Why would he do that? Most of us want the fame that comes with our name attached to the front of a book. It was fairly common, as you may already know, for writers in the 19th century to publish anonymously, especially women writers. Women writers often did so to protect their identity as women and to protect their books from unfair gendered criticism. Jane Austen published all of her books anonymously, and later 19th century writers like Charlotte Bronte, Emily Bronte, and George Eliot adopted male pseudonyms. Scott said he did it as, a, as an experiment, explaining that he thought it was that there was impropriety in someone with his career writing novels. However, (laughs) scholars are not convinced. Scholars are pretty sure that it was a money-making scheme, that he wanted to create mystery around his novels um, and try to sell more novels accordingly. And it worked. He sold a lot of books, he became quite famous, and he continued to publish anonymously until 1827. Waverly is the first of Scott's historical novels, set just before the Jacobite uprising of 1745 and it's regarded as one of the first, if not the first, historical novels in the English language. It was a huge critical and commercial success and set Scott's subsequent writing career into motion. However, not everyone was excited about the publication of Waverly. Jane Austen had something to say about Scott's entree into the world of novel writing. Walter Scott has no business to write novels, especially good ones. It is not fair. He has fame and profit enough as a poet and should not be taking the bread out of other people's mouths. I do not like him and do not mean to like Waverly. If I can help it, but fear, I must. As my teenagers would say, Sir Walter Scott had some high-profile haters in his time. But Austin's censure certainly did not slow Scott down. Twenty-six novels were eventually published within the Waverly Novels series. The novels were published anonymously as by the author of Waverly, and that's why they're called the Waverly Novels. They're not necessarily connected in the way that other series, like later series by Trollope, might, you know, the Barchester Towers and those sort of series are. Some of the more famous novels in this collection include Rob Roy, The Heart of Midlothian, Ivanhoe, and The Bride of Lammermoor. The Bride of Lammermoor, as I mentioned earlier, was published in 1819 and was part of Tales of My Landlord, third series, along with a novel called A Legend of Montrose. At the time of the publication, Scott's reputation as a novelist was unparalleled. Scott was famous for creating elaborate frame stories for his novels, possibly to help keep his identity anonymous, but also just because it creates a kind of authenticity to the stories, including introductions that suggest the novels were written by scholars, editors, and interested citizens local to the setting of the novel. The first frame story for The Bride of Lamamore is like a double frame story. In it, Peter Pattison says that he has reconstructed the story from disorderly notes left behind by his now deceased friend, the artist Dick Tinto. And these notes were from a conversation between Dick Tinto and a Lamamores farmer's wife. It's very complicated. Just wait till we get to the summary of the love triangle. So you can see how Scott is using this complex frame story to create a tone of authenticity, right? This is very real. These notes were left behind. This story is real. The second frame story was added in subsequent editions, so not the first edition, and is a rambling introduction by Scott himself, wherein he attempts to delineate the historical origins of the tale while admitting that some critical details have been changed. Both of these frame stories seem to have one goal, and that is to convince the reader that, although they are reading fiction, this story is true. Like Waverly, The Bride of Lamamore is a historical novel. It's set in 1707, right before the Act of Union, two separate legislative acts that joined England and Scotland into the United Kingdom of Great Britain. As I mentioned earlier, Scott is often regarded as the originator of the historical fiction genre. Historical fiction is just what it sounds like. Fiction that is set in the past. It doesn't need to be set in the distant past, but it does need to be set in some earlier point of history. And most importantly, the historical circumstances of that time need to be important to the story, okay? So you don't just, a novel set 30 years before but that doesn't take the context into account doesn't really count. Scott preferred the genre of the historical novel because it allowed him to explore what he believed to be the universal condition of humankind. He describes this in Waverly, and this is the quote that's up on the slide. Passions are common to men in all stages of society, in which alike agitated the human heart, whether it throbbed under the steel corslet of the 15th century, the brocaded coat of the 19th, or the blue frock and white dimity waistcoats of the present day. So Scott says, you know, we're all the same. And essentially, historical fiction gives him the opportunity to imagine how people would have responded to different historical events. And if we harken back to Twain for a minute, historical fiction can also encourage the romanticization of the past. Often, historical fiction looks back fondly on a different point in history and suggests that those were the good old days. And indeed, this is part of the draw. Historical fiction can provide the reader with an escape from their own time and a portal to an idealized past. I always laugh when you know, there's a lot of fan fiction about the 19th century. And a lot of my students, specifically my women students, like to read it. And they're like, oh, it seems like such a neat time to live. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Not, it was, it, no, you're, you're better now. Um, <laughs> Uh, historical fiction grew in popularity over the 19th century and remains quite popular today. One of the best examples is Diana Garbledon's hugely popular 10-volume Outlander series, which is now, I think, a television show. The historical context of The Bride of Lammermoor* is very important to its larger themes. As I mentioned earlier, it's set just before the Acts of Union that joined England and Scotland into the United Kingdom of Great Britain. While the looming legislation is only mentioned sporadically in the novel, its significance is really more symbolic than literal. The book is not really about England and Scotland joining. What it is about is two families, an ancient aristocratic family that's in decline, the Ravenswoods, and a newly wealthy family, the Ashtons, who who are ascending socially and financially. At the beginning of the novel, Sir William Ashton's sharp legal eye, political savviness, and thick pocketbook have allowed him to come into possession of the ancient Ravenswood estate, pictured here in an illustration from the novel, after the Ravenswood, the aristocratic family's carelessness put them into a debt they couldn't recover from. A fairly common critique of the aristocracy throughout the 19th century, that they're spendthrifts who don't think about the future. The novel thus immediately presents its reader with a tension between old and new, feudal and modern, profligacy and frugality, and superstition and logic. And all of this conflict is embodied within the psychology of the novel's hero, Edgar Ravenswood, the son of the late Lord Ravenswood. Edgar is educated, he's open-minded, he's a rational thinker. And yet he is simultaneously very conscious of rank, full of aristocratic pride, and pretty salty about what his family has lost. Throughout the story, he oscillates between his emotional ties to the old feudal system and a rational acceptance of the new order. And like so many 19th century novels, those tensions play out in the marriage plot, which I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about. And I'm going to first attempt to summarize it for you. So Edgar Ravenswood, as I mentioned, is the last remaining heir of the Ravenswood family, who's lost their ancestral home. He falls in love with Lucy Ashton, who is the daughter of the man who has taken his family home. Lucy is an archetypal heroine. She's young, she's beautiful, she's pale, she's dependent, she's kind, she's patient, and she promotes harmony. Lucy and Edgar fall in love, improbably, after Edgar saves Lucy from a loose, angry bull in the forest. The two seemingly fall in love at first sight as they have remarkably few interactions in the novel before they get married. And this is another, if you've read 19th century novels, you know this is a pretty typical convention of the 19th century marriage plot. The tension Edgar previously felt between his emotional ties to the old world and his acceptance of the new world order are now embodied in Lucy and her father. And Edgar is faced with a troubling choice. He must decide between marrying Lucy and allying himself with her family or renouncing Lucy and taking revenge on her father. Complicating matters further, when Edgar and Lucy visit Alice, an old woman who has lived on the Ravenswood estate her entire life and who feels great loyalty to their family, she warns them in a rather spooky and portentous way against getting married. Days later, she is dead and Edgar is haunted by an apparition of her. So his internal conflict about marrying Lucy is shaped not just by intellect and emotion, but also ancient superstition. Meanwhile, Lucy's cruel, domineering and maniacal mother, who's very much a kind of Lady Macbeth figure, has been largely absent from the story because she's off traveling but she returns home to find Edgar staying at the castle and she is not pleased. When she catches wind of Lucy's engagement, she is enraged and immediately orders Edgar to leave the castle and begins plotting for her daughter to marry the rakish character, Francis Haston, the laird of Bucklaw. Lucy, ever virtuous and good, is torn between being a dutiful daughter and a faithful fiance to Edgar. And complicating matters even further is that she cannot speak to Edgar about her dilemma because she doesn't know where he went when he left the castle. Under pressure from her mother, Lucy agrees to marry Bucklaw if she has not heard from Edgar by St. Jude's Day, which is several months away. As the marriage plot unfolds, Lucy becomes more and more passive and silent. Any agency she possessed earlier in the novel seems to have given way under pressure from her mother. And this quote is a great example of her powerlessness near the end of the novel. Quote, Lucy was now like the sailor who, while drifting through a tempestuous ocean, clings for safety to a single plank, his powers of grasping it becoming every moment more feeble, and the deep darkness of the night only checkered by the flashes of lightning, hissing as they show the white tops of the billows in which he is soon to be engulfed. Week crept away after week, and day after day, St. Jude's Day arrived, the last and protracted term to which Lucy had limited herself, and there was neither letter nor news of Ravenswood. While Lucy was never a particularly strong and willful character, here she is described as losing any final shreds of hope and personal strength. Her last bit of will is nearly exhausted, and she will soon be completely engulfed by the pressures weighing her down. On the day of her wedding, Lucy goes through the motions in a completely docile and submissive way. She's described as suffering herself to be dressed. She claims she doesn't have the will to speak to her brother because her life no longer has pleasure and she can barely muster the energy to dip her dry pen in the inkstand before signing the marriage contract. When she finally does so, and she's in the act of signing the agreement over her mother's watchful and exacting eye, the hasty tramp of a horse was heard at the gate, succeeded by a step in the outer gallery, and a voice which in a commanding tone bore down the opposition of the menials. The pen dropped from Lucy's fingers as she exclaimed with a faint shriek, He has come, he has come. Edgar enters the room at the most dramatic moment possible. So you can see how she, this is Edgar sort of pointing at her and you can see how resigned she looks. Even though he's just burst into the room, there's no renewal of energy. There's no, she doesn't stand up, she doesn't even faint. She just sits there looking pale and dejected and sort of staring at her lap. Lucy's passive stance here continues throughout the next chapter of the book. As Ravenswood renounces their engagement, he thinks this is what she wants, and she remains almost completely silent, only managing to utter a faltering yes when Ravenswood asks her if the handwriting on the marriage contract is hers. Indeed, the scene is so disturbing to Lucy that she is described as in a state of total stupor when she finally leaves the room and enters her bedchamber. She has become so passive and incoherent that those around her question whether she even understands or remembers the scene with Ravenswood. So she's just completely muted and passive at this point. And this is what makes the final turn of Lucy's story so fascinating. On her wedding night, after a day spent in a nearly catatonic and servile state, she viciously stabs her new husband in an astonishing and remarkable scene. And again, this is a long quote, but I promise you it's worth it. <laughs> um, so at the beginning of the scene, the marriage celebrations are still going on. The instruments now played their loudest strains. The dancers pursued their exercise with all the enthusiasm inspired by youth, mirth, and high spirits, when a cry was heard so shrill and piercing as at once to arrest the dance and the music all stood motionless. But when the yell was again repeated, Colonel Ashton, Lucy's brother, snatched a torch from the sconce and demanding the key of the bridal chamber, rushed thither, followed by Sir William and Lady Ashton and one or two others near relations of the family. The bridal guests waited their return in stupefied amazement. So there's kind of an inverse here. Now the guests are stupefied and can't speak. Arrived at the door of the apartment, Colonel Ashton knocked and called but received no answer except stifled groans. He hesitated no longer to open the door of the apartment in which he found opposition from something which lay against it. When he had succeeded in opening it, the body of the bridegroom was found lying on the threshold of the bridal chamber and all around was flooded with blood." A cry of surprise and horror was raised by all present, and the company excited by this new alarm began to rush tumultuously towards the sleeping apartment when one of the company, holding his torch lower than the rest, discovered something white in the corner of the great old-fashioned chimney of the apartment. Here, they found the unfortunate girl seated, or rather couched like a hare upon its form crouched, I should say, sorry. Her headgear disheveled, her nightclothes torn and dabbled with blood, her eyes glazed, and her features convulsed into a wild paroxysm of insanity. When she saw herself discovered, she gibbered, made mouths, and pointed at them with her bloody fingers with the frantic gestures of an exulting demoniac. On her wedding night, Lucy Ashton transforms from an archetypal heroine, that beautiful, docile, sweet woman, to a raving madwoman. She's murderous, she's inarticulate, she's blood-soaked, she's demonic, and she's ugly. And interestingly, there are no illustrations of Lucy from this part of the book, which is, I think, kind of interesting because it's such a remarkable scene that you would think we would get a chance to see her, but I think they thought it was too awful to represent. She's nearly unrecognizable throughout the scene. No one, including the narrator, refers to her by name, but only as girl, and they describe her in animalistic and demonic terms. Lucy seems not to be Lucy at all. Lucy Ashton seems to have lost her mind, to have been pushed to the brink of insanity by her lack of personal autonomy, her separation from her true love, and her overbearing mother. Because Lucy was so passive and incoherent in the scenes leading up to the murder, it seems as though she had some kind of psychic break. That she doesn't know who she is, her eyes are glazed and her features twisted into an unrecognizable shape, and that she certainly doesn't know what she did. The perfect woman would not knowingly stab her new husband so violently that the room was flooded with blood, right? Well, I'm not so sure. Lucy has a moment that casts some doubt. Female assistance was now hastily summoned. The unhappy bride, and note again, the narrator doesn't use her name, was overpowered, not without the use of some force. As they carried her over the threshold, she looked down and uttered the only articulate words that she had spoken, saying, with a sort of grinning exultation, so, you have taken up your bonnie bridegroom? It's a gorgeously chilling moment in the novel. Only a moment earlier, Lucy was incoherent and inarticulate. And now she's making a joke and experiencing a moment of grinning exultation. As the women forcefully carry her over the threshold, Lucy recognizes the irony of the situation. It should be her bridegroom carrying her over the threshold and asks the women, so you have taken up your Bonnie bridegroom? Suddenly, Lucy seems to know exactly who she is and exactly what she's done. And she seems damn happy about it. So perhaps Lucy was in her right mind all along. What if, rather than losing her mind, Lucy lost her patience? What if what looks like madness is actually rebellion. If we unpack this scene a bit further, we can think about the compulsory nature of Lucy being carried over the threshold by the women. She's carried with force. She is made to do something against her will with her physical body. She's overpowered. After pages and pages of being completely docile and submissive, Lucy is fighting back finally and exerting, trying to exert some control over herself. She's fighting, being carried away. One cannot help but think here of the fact that Lucy stabbed her husband on their wedding night when presumably they were meant to be consummating their marriage. Did Lucy stab her bridegroom in a moment of self-defense? Did she stab her bridegroom to prevent him from sexually assaulting her? She has already been forced into a marriage against her will. Did she draw the line at being forced to consummate that marriage? I think the story allows for that possibility. And in this context, The Bride of Lamamore seems very modern. If Lucy Ashton is not a madwoman but a rebel, then maybe we can claim her as a feminist. And in that way, I think the novel has tremendous potential for contemporary adaptation and reworking. It's easy to imagine how it might inspire modern adaptations that draw out the latent feminism of the story, using Lucy Ashton as a warning about the desperate measures women will take when stripped of their freedom of choice. And while I will applaud such adaptations, like Lucy Ashton, with grinning exultation, I'm not going to stab anybody, though, (laughs) I'm not so sure Sir Walter Scott would. To close, I want to return to the beginning of this talk, and specifically to Mark Twain. So maybe I am letting Mark Twain have the last word after all. As you might remember, or maybe not, i rambled on at some length at this point, Mark Twain didn't think much of Sir Walter Scott. Twain lambasted him for his romanticization of the good old days, his indulgent treatment of the aristocracy. In The Bride of Lamamore, I think we see exactly what Twain was talking about. The novel's most compelling story, that Romance between Edgar and Lucy is not really what the novel is about at all. Like many 19th century novelists, Scott uses this marriage plot to work out the socio political tensions in the story. And so, to unpack that, I want to turn to the novel's very anticlimactic conclusion after this wonderfully climactic stabbing scene. Despite his wounds, Bucklaw survives and refuses to ever tell anyone what happened in the chamber. Lucy does not survive long after the attack. And at her funeral, her brother challenges Edgar to a duel to avenge his sister's death. In one final shocking and really weird moment, Edgar and his horse are sort of approaching the duel, and they sink into quicksand and are never seen again. (laughs) It's so weird. I had to like reread it. I was like, no, that's not what I just read, right? (laughs) Like I said, it's quite an anticlimactic final chapter. In the final paragraphs of the novel, after Lucy has died and Edward is drowned in quicksand, two things happen. First, the narrator spends a lengthy paragraph telling the reader about how Caleb Brownstone, this is Edgar's servant and a longtime servant of the Lammermoor family, simply could not be consoled after Edgar's death life lost all pleasure when Caleb lost his master. The narrator literally says that even food has lost its flavor for him. And I should mention that Edgar gives him all of his money before he goes to the duel. So Caleb is rich, but life is not worth living when he's not serving the Ravenswood family. Maybe Twain had a point, right? And so within a year of Edgar's death, Caleb dies too. The death of the last surviving Ravenswood heir and his servant marks the end of an era. The new era is marked, and this is the final paragraph of the novel, by the erection of a, quote, splendid marble monument, end quote, in honor of the awful Lady Ashton, Lucy's mother, whose monument the narrator tells us, quote, records her name, titles, and virtues, while her victims remain undistinguished by tomb or epigraph, end quote. In the context of these two narrative events, we can reassess the novel's marriage plot and Lucy's rebellion as Scott issuing a dire warning about progress and the destruction of the aristocracy and a desperate plea to stay true to the past. One might imagine an alternate marriage plot where Edgar and Lucy are able to marry, live happily ever after, and quite literally reproduce the aristocracy and ensure its continued existence. But that's not what happens. Lucy is forced into a marriage she doesn't want, so she stabs her way out of it, and the aristocracy, the good old days, end up being the real casualty. For Scott, Lucy's demise has little to do with Lucy, or women's subjection, or sexual assault, but it does have a lot to do with progressive politics. It's the chickens coming home to roost for Scott. Throughout the novel, Lucy represents the ideal 19th century woman. When she transforms at the end of the novel into the demonic person, Lucy's earlier self becomes yet another symbol of the good old days that will be destroyed with progress. Not only will we lose our aristocracy, Scott warns, but we will lose our women, or at least our women as we like them, docile, submissive, beautiful, and patient. This begins to sound like a lecture on like modern politics, I feel like suddenly at this point. But I think we can flip the script. I think we can inoculate against Sir Walter Scott disease and celebrate the progressive potential of the story. Women characters in 19th century novels got one of two endings, marriage or death. If they behaved well throughout the novel, they were rewarded with marriage. If they behaved poorly, they were punished with death. Lucy gets both. But rather than accept marriage as a reward, she regards it as a punishment and actively seeks out death as an alternative. Rather than reading the ending fatalistically as a warning about the erosion of traditional values, we can read it progressively as a narrative about the urgent need to protect women's autonomy and their freedom of choice. Understanding the historical context of a novel and its author's intentions is a great place to start the interpretive process. Unlike Scott, though, we are not beholden to the past and we need not uphold it at the expense of more liberating and exciting narrative possibilities. Students often tell me that they can't relate to historical novels, that they don't seem relevant to their lives or their values. I hear this all the time. I think if we open up the exegetical possibilities of historical literature, we immediately make that literature more relatable and more thrilling. If we let a student read Lucy as a rebel and not a victim, I think that might make it a more powerful story for students. Modern interpretations of historical texts, like the production that we're all here to talk about today, give us a surefire way of broadening a text's potential and our students' interest. Thank you.
0: Don't miss Lucia de Lammermoor at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion this Sunday, October 9th. Tickets are available at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.